Matthew 21. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 as Matthew's account of Jesus' triumphal entry. And then really, um, we're going to step away from Matthew 21 for a while and and try to build back towards it and, and come to it again at the end. But I do want to start here. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, the Mount of, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And And the crowds went that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray this morning. Our Father, we give thanks to you once again for the privilege that is ours to address you as our Father, as your sons and your daughters, and only through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. Thank you for sending him. Thank you that he obeyed to the death death on the cross. Thank you that you raised him from the dead. Thank you that he's seated at your right hand interceding for us. And thank you that your disposition towards us is one of love and kindness and affection and no longer hostility and and wrath. And the theme that we're on today just uh, gives us a glimpse into a segment in the process of Christ accomplishing our redemption. So would you walk us through it and help us to see the meaning in it so that we might leave here um, nourished and sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've progressed in our study of redemption, you're probably hopefully well aware that two weeks ago we reached somewhat of a kind of a climactic, pivotal turning point, whatever term you prefer, with the ascension of Jesus. So the the bodily, in a cloud, to his throne, at the Father's right hand, ascension of Jesus. So we reached the turning point from redemption accomplished to redemption applied, which is where we're going to be the next 12 weeks or so as we work through all the details of that in a very particular way order, the the important realities such as union with Christ and regeneration, faith and repentance, 
justification, reconciliation, adoption, sanctification, and perseverance, glorification, and eternal life, along with a few other very specific triumphs of Jesus. His triumph over sin, over Satan, over Satan's works to full and final restoration. So having journeyed through weeks and weeks of Christ crucified, expiating sin, propitiating his father's wrath against us, the sky going dark in the middle of the day to reflect Jesus' forsakenness by his father as he who knew no sin became sin for us and bore the wrath that our sin had earned. But then the father turning and rending the temple veil in two from top to Bottom signifying his satisfaction in Jesus' atonement. Not only his atonement as alongside every other day of atonement offering that had ever been offered since the law was given, but the atoning sacrifice to which all the others pointed. And the sacrifice to end all sacrifices thereafter as well. And not just end all sacrifices, but actually fully abolish the old covenant that called for them by fulfilling it in every one of its positive commands as well as its penal sanctions. And not just fulfilling it and thereby abolishing it, but then inaugurating a new and eternal covenant with us, his people, through his bloodshed. We journeyed through that only to turn from there to then see Jesus buried that Friday evening, only to rise from the dead in triumph the following Sunday morning, only to ascend to the heavens 40 days later to his Father's right hand to receive his crown and his kingdom and that forever in fulfillment of God's promises. And yet, having made all all of that progress forward. We are stepping back again this week into the life of Jesus. And not only this week, but next week as well, before we proceed any further in our study of redemption. And on the one hand, I I want to move on. I really want to move on to redemption applied And talk about all the gifts and blessings and graces that the Holy Spirit applies to us through what Jesus suffered for us. There is a sense in which it's nice to be in the order of our study past the cross and the blood and the suffering and the cry of dereliction and to the empty tomb and to the ascension. But there is another sense in which we never move on from the cross and the blood and the suffering and the agony, do we? We've looked at 1 Corinthians 15 that actually calls us to live there, stand there, never move on from there. That gospel, Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose from the dead, live there, stand there, never Move on from there. And yet, in the order of our study, we have moved on, but not really. Not ever. So even as we consider these next two weeks, we're taking a few steps back into Jesus' life. 
our motives these two weeks are, are really kind of dictated by our calendar. Next week should, should be pretty obvious to you. It's Easter Sunday. This week probably should be more obvious than it might be to many of us, especially if you've come from a church tradition that didn't really recognize or emphasize the dates throughout the year that Christians throughout the centuries have marked as significant and celebratory, and if not celebratory, at least meaningful enough to mark and celebrate or observe on the calendar every year. And if you haven't come from that kind of a background, you might not know that today is Palm Sunday, the first day of the last week of Jesus' life. Or maybe you call it Passion Sunday. Labeled such because of the events that unfold in the week that follows. Out of sheer curiosity, because I know that we're, we are pretty diverse in our ecclesiastical backgrounds. How many of you come from a church background, denominational or, or not, where Palm Sunday and Good Friday, obviously across the board, Easter Sunday... The, the Ascension, Pentecost, and then the four or five weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas were recognized or observed in your Sunday gatherings in your background. Just kind of an obvious no-brainer. We do this every year. Great. Not sure I'm expecting an entirely honest answer, but how many of you just realized it was Palm Sunday like three minutes ago? I did see a hand. Or two. Um, I, I want to work hard this morning to, to set the scene for the event that marks Palm Sunday, which is Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey in the gathered crowd, blanketing the road in front of him with palm branches, and the crowd following him as he entered, shouting out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's the, the bare event. But it's marked on the calendar to observe each year because it is full of meaning and significance that we want to understand this morning for our benefit. So setting this scene hopefully will, will help towards that. But it's not, I want to caution us, it's not merely a recitation of facts that we're after this morning, nor is it ever what we're after, as if our hope is ever that just some random detail might stick out to you and stay with you from what we say here on Sunday mornings and just send you on your way, satisfied by a tidbit. We, we hope it never becomes that. We don't ever want it to be like that. In the process of setting the scene and retelling the story of Palm Sunday this morning, our hope is that Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Our hope is that might be the renewed cry of your heart. So the question is this morning, where, where do we start to set this scene? Do we just back up a few days into the weekend in Jesus' life? Or do we step back a bit further into Jesus' life where we're going to start this 
morning is where we always start. With God, in eternity, covenanting together to create a world into which Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, would enter and over which he would be enthroned as king and rightful heir, and among which the father would choose a bride for his son, and for which the incarnate son would both live and suffer and die and rise from the dead, thereby redeeming his bride and betrothing her to himself and pledging himself to her for all of eternity sealing his covenant in his blood in him as the bridegroom and the king returning to his home and his throne so that he might prepare his bride's eternal dwelling with the promise that he will in fact return to join her to himself in marriage never again to be separated not by sin because it has been atoned for once and for all in his death Not by death because it has been overcome by his resurrection from the dead. Not by Satan because his head is crushed and his end is the lake of fire. So with Paul we are persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of our God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It, It doesn't take long into the creation account if we step all the way Back before God's purposes were not only revealed, but in their being revealed, they created a generation after generation hope and anticipation and longing for their fulfillment that is on full display on the events that take place on Palm Sunday. We've rehearsed the story enough in the last few months that I'm quite confident that if I were just hand this over to many of you. You could rehearse the story yourself. God's purpose, in God's purposes, he created a world consisting of the heavens and the earth. The earth was divided between dry land and water. The dry land was fully furnished with, quote, vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruits, fruit trees bearing fruit, which is in their seed, each according to its kind. Fully stocked with living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. The waters were stocked with swarms of living creatures, great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. The heavens then were decorated with lights that were designed for signs and seasons and for days and years. Two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. The skies then were filled with every winged bird according to its kind. And both beyond and among all things created stood an innumerable company of angelic beings and all was well in God's creation, as we read over and over and over again in Genesis 1. And in one specific place, in this newly created world, there was a garden that existed on the east end of a place called Eden. 
And this garden contained its own allotted proportion of all the good things that filled the rest of the earth. Vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit, which is in their seed, each according to its kind. As well as its own designed proportion of living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And birds according to their kinds, which would build their nests in Eden's trees and bring joy and song to Eden's skies. And it was there that man, that God chose to place his image bearers. Mankind, human beings, Adam and Eve by name. Adam as the representative head of all of his descendants and Eve, his wife, the mother of all living according to Genesis 3 and verse 20. And it was there in the garden on the east end of Eden, on the dry land of planet Earth, in the vast world of God's creation, that God chose to consecrate that garden as the first temple by meeting uniquely with his people and speaking to them there and visiting them there and entering into covenant with them there issuing in his covenant both positive demands for the display of his image on earth and the expansion of the borders of his temple to the ends of the earth as his image bearers would multiply and fill the earth and fulfill their covenantal responsibilities. And it was there that he also warned of judgments that would fall should his image bearers break his covenant. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die and violate the covenant and consequently die they did. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Covenant broken, penal sanctions imposed, the curse pronounced, death now lurking and lusting around every corner. And yet, rather than pronouncing the curse and unleashing death to satisfy its insatiable cravings. 
and then walking away and letting the world self-destruct on its own because his plan was somehow thwarted by the will of man, the fall in the garden was revealed to actually be the occasion by which God's eternal plan to send his son to redeem the bride that he had chosen for him and the world that he created to exalt him over as king and heir, the fall was the occasion by which that plan was revealed in a covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15. The covenant of grace had at its center not only the promise that everything cursed would be renewed and every enemy defeated, but more importantly and more central was the promise of a person through whom every enemy would be defeated and through whom everything cursed would be restored. The serpent and his seed would be defeated, both the angels that followed him in the rebellion and every human being that follows him in treason against King Jesus by refusing to swear allegiance to him by faith in his accomplishments. You know the verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. With that promise enters anticipation and hope and grace and faith that is on display over and over again as scripture records history unfold. First with Cain until Cain was revealed to be the seed of the serpent rather than the seed of the woman long before he killed his brother Abel, who fit the description much more than Cain, but was murdered by him in the field one day out of jealousy. And then with Seth, whom Eve not only acknowledges as a gift from God's sovereign hand, but she identifies him specifically, intentionally, with Abel instead of Cain, partly based upon her hope that he might be the one. Of course, we know that the curse and sin and death continue to destroy and reign and overtake. But God continues to speak and act and speak and act, and thereby maintain the hope of his people in their coming rescuer. Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then Noah, of whom Lamech says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. If that is not evidence in a maintained, gracious hope in Genesis 3.15, nothing is. Interestingly enough, it's Noah with whom God reiterates his covenant and with whom God starts over after he destroys the world with a flood and gives the sign of the rainbow pointing up to heaven rather than down to earth, promising that he would remember his covenant with creation and never again destroy the world in that way, but symbolizing at the same time that the next time his fury was unleashed, the arrow from his bow would be directed not downwards toward earth, but upwards into heaven. God's faithfulness to his covenant would require such It is also interesting 
that at every critical juncture in the unfolding of Scripture, every covenantal juncture, there is either a son chosen among other sons or a son promised in coordination with the covenant. These junctures are what form the structure of the Old Testament. But again, not just for the sake of structure, but to maintain the hope of his people in the rescuer who would come and lift the curse and reverse the effects of the fall and crush his enemies and restore all things. So from Noah's sons, Canaan is cursed, seed of the serpent. Japheth is blessed, but Shem is chosen. Through Shem, Abram, is chosen and called not just to a different geographic location, but more importantly to God himself in covenant relationship where at the center of that covenant was the promise of a seed who would come and who would bless all the families of the earth. And when all hope of that was lost, when Abram and Sarah were up there in years, God both spoke again and acted again and gave Abraham and Sarah a seed of their own union, a son, a son of promise, as he's called, hope restored. Covenant reiterated with Isaac, yet once again barren womb. Isaac driven to his knees in dependence upon God for a son and an heir, not just an heir for his stuff and his name, but an heir of the covenant and the promise. And God answers. Once again, the barren womb conceives, and not just one son is born, but two, Jacob and Esau. Hope restored. Jacob chosen by God and blessed by his father prophetically as his father says, may God give you of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and let nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed is everyone who curses you and blessed is everyone who blesses you. What is that? It is covenant reiterated. Two wives, two servants, 12 sons, and many years later when it is Jacob's turn to bless his sons. The promise of a son who would rule and who would win the obedience of his people is given to Judah. And many years later, after that 12-tribe nation named after their father Israel is given their covenant law in Moses and demands a king from Samuel, and after the kingdom is torn from Saul, the Benjamite, through his violation of God's law, Isaac's blessings upon Jacob that he would be lord over his brothers and that his mother's sons would bow down to him and that nations would serve him and Jacob's blessings upon Judah that the scepter would not depart from him nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of all peoples. Those blessings take the form of another covenant. In King David. King David, the son of his father, from the tribe of Judah, from the family of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, from the seed of Eve. 
And the covenant with David was not that he was the one, but that his offspring would be. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So among all the other things that the Redeemer of Genesis 3.15 would be for his people, which we've talked about elsewhere, he would in fact be a king who would rule over his people and who would bless them and who would crush their enemies. And now in David, he would be that for them forever by promise. So when David is old, And the urgency of Adonijah appointing himself king in his father's place forces David to choose an heir to his throne. And by implied anticipation, the offspring God's people have been waiting for who would build the house for God's name and sit on an eternal throne and be fathered by God himself and serve at God's right hand as a son. David chooses Solomon. And what do they do to Solomon to identify him as the true successor? First Kings chapter one and verse 33 says they seat him on his father's donkey and they lead him through Jerusalem to an equally public place to where Adonijah was proclaiming himself to be king. And there Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint Solomon as king and they shout, long live King Solomon. Once again, hope restored. The promise remains. God has once again spoken and acted. Solomon does, in fact, build a house for God's name. But Solomon reveals himself to be a sinner, just like his father, under the same curse and therefore unable to lift it himself from other people. He is subject to the same death that swallowed up everybody else before him. So Solomon dies. Not only does Solomon die, but the house that he builds for God's name is eventually destroyed. Most of the kings who ruled after David and Solomon are actually very wicked kings, and even the righteous ones die. And the nation is eventually Invaded three times in a short span of years by Babylon and eventually is just carried away off into captivity. And yet, God not only promises them going into that, that they would return 70 years later through the prophet Jeremiah. He promises them while they're there through the prophet Ezekiel that there was coming a new covenant into which he himself would change their hearts They put his spirit within them so that they might live. And even when they return 70 years later, he continues to speak to them through prophets like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, extending and maintaining the hope of his people through them. And there is no more significant word from God to them in coordination with our theme this morning than Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. 
Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, which our text in Matthew 21, 5 recognizes as fulfilled when Jesus, the greater than Solomon and David's true heir, enters Jerusalem seated upon a donkey. I remember having these just really somewhat pointless, ultimately just really strange debates about whether or not Jesus just happened to know that the disciples would find a donkey tied or whether he prearranged it, the same kind of thing with the upper room. And unfortunately, the debate never got to the greater point. That whether he prearranged it or just knew it and in his sovereignty claimed that donkey for his presentation of himself as Israel's king, which is what he's doing here, certainly what he's doing here. Jesus not only wrote his script along with the Father and the Spirit in the covenant of redemption before the world began, but he knew in his life what the scriptures said about himself. So this was absolutely deliberate. This was planned. This was intentional. This was the seed of Eve from the family of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah and the bloodline of David who throughout the last three plus years of his public ministry had spoken God's word with such authority that people followed him and had no answers for his questions and no further questions to his answers. This is the one who performed all the miracles that the prophets assigned to Israel's coming Messiah. He'd opened blind eyes. He'd healed the maimed. He'd mended the brokenhearted. And most recently in John 12 with Lazarus, he even raised the dead. And yet all throughout, Jesus had charged those who were the recipients of his grace to keep quiet about him and to be faithful to the law of Moses because the time for his revealing had not yet come. Well, brothers and sisters, this was the time. This was the appointed time for his revealing while four times the city's population flooded into Jerusalem for Passover. And according to Andreas Kostenberger, the crowds in Jerusalem were like a powder keg, ready for a spark, filled to the brim each year with both messianic fervor and hatred of Roman rule. For that reason, Rome kept an extra watchful eye on Jerusalem during the festivities, in addition to the Jews already having an extra watchful eye on Jesus himself. So Jesus knew this was the time of his revealing. So he did it in an unmistakably symbolic way. David's heir. Zechariah's king of Jerusalem riding upon a donkey and having salvation. And the powder keg crowd responded with equally unmistakable symbolism. Carpeting the path in front of him with palm branches, which was a common way to greet a triumphant war hero returning from battle. Which is why this is called the triumphal entry. 
The crowd is even singing Psalm 118 to Jesus and about him as he enters the city. And Jesus not only does not rebuke them, but when the Pharisees command that he rebuke them, Jesus says, if they weren't singing Psalm 118 to me and about me, the stones would be singing it. And yet, even though Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their praise, because their praise is rightfully his alone, Luke's account in Luke 19 tells us that as Jesus enters the city, he begins to weep over it because he knows that their praise is absolutely empty. Jesus knows they wanted to anoint him king right there on the spot based upon Zechariah 9 and verse 9. And Jesus knows they did not want or did not know Zechariah 9 verses 10 and 11. They didn't want a humble king who would speak peace to the nations and rule from sea to sea to the ends of the earth and seal his covenant with his own blood, thereby bringing the anticipated salvation to his people. It's not what they wanted. They wanted the war hero who would over throw, which is why five days later, you find another crowd crying out with a different chant directed towards Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. Palm Sunday centers around the triumphal entry of Jesus, called such Rightly, because that is how the people greet Jesus in the moment. Which shows they understood to a degree what he wanted to present himself as there. The promised Messiah, the the serpent-crushing seed, the Abrahamic son who would bless his people and curse his enemies, the Davidic heir who would sit on the throne and rule forever and bring salvation to Israel. So triumphal entry is is a fitting term, but I would argue that it is a premature term, because the real triumph came at the end of that week, at the cross and with the empty tomb, which is why we are redeemed and which is why the throne is occupied today and forevermore with a true king who's brought salvation and inaugurated a new covenant that will never be abolished or broken. And yet, one day in the future, the praise that Jesus knew was empty, ultimately. In Matthew 21, from those who wanted him to be something that he was not, will in fact be turned to praise that is real. And Holy Spirit produced from his people and even from angels, all based upon who he in fact is and what he in fact has done. So this morning I close with Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, where John says, After this I looked, 
And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for designing the world in such a way that your Son, his accomplishments are always on display at the forefront of the hearts of your people. Lord, you You maintain this faith in us through your word, by your spirit, even through these gatherings. So, Lord, our hope going in is the same as our prayer going out, that there would be a renewed cry in our hearts. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna to Jesus in the highest. Produce that in the lives of your people here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name.